Well, love and greetings to each one of you tonight in the precious and the powerful and the most worthy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a joy to be here with you this week, and I'm anticipating that God will speak to each one of us, and I want you to know that I raised my hand as one of the first-time students here this morning, because I'm planning to learn also. And so may God meet with us, each one of us, both tonight and throughout the rest of the week. I would like to begin by singing part of another hymn, 478, in the books that you have there, 478. Sing part of it, and perhaps if we remember, we'll sing some more of it later. We're going to look at some scripture text tonight that has words that this hymn contains. And so I'd like to begin by singing perhaps the first verse in the chorus of this song, 478. Let's sing it together. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me He hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ. Thank you. I deem me for His own, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that He is able to to keep that which I've committed unto Him. Against that day. Amen. Thank you for your joyful singing tonight. Some of the most important words that men and women ever hear in life are what we call last words. A loved one, a dying child, a mother or a father or a grandfather or a sister or whoever it might be. The words that we remember before their death or perhaps on their deathbed are often treasured as special words, as powerful words, as words that we grasp. I remember when I was a boy, my parents had a book on the shelf that was called Voices from the Edge of Eternity. And I've wanted to look at that book again, but I haven't seen it for a long time. But it was a collection of last words, phrases that people had uttered, both godly people. And, and I remember some, some chilling last words from atheists and from ungodly men and women who screamed on their deathbed because they were not ready to face eternity. Oh, God! Those who in life had stated they did not believe in God. Last words. Encouraging, inspiring, chilling. Last words are important. 
Tonight we would like to look together at some last words. But before we do that, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. O Lord, our gracious Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus we come tonight, desiring once again, pleading once again, Lord, for your presence to be with us. I pray that you would take the words of your word and that you would inspire them with the breath of your spirit and open the hearts of each one. Lord, tonight would you drive back our distractions, drive back drowsiness, drive back prejudice, drive back opinions, drive back fears, drive back whatever might hinder your word, drive back the enemy himself in the name of Jesus tonight. And open our hearts, Lord, that we might hear from you once again this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to remind you tonight, before we look at some last words, I want to remind you of some glimpses of last words in the Bible that we find that you might remember. We're not going to turn to them, I'm just going to highlight them for you. Perhaps you remember that Jacob... The Bible says in the book of Genesis that before he died, he called his sons together to give them some last words. You remember Jacob's sons became the the figureheads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he had some words of blessing and words of prophecy for each of those sons. Last words. They were important. The sons gathered together. I'm sure in awe as their father uttered his last words. And then the Bible says that Jacob gathered up his feet into his bed and died. I think about Joseph, one of Jacob's sons years later. When he was dying, he called together some of the children of Israel there in Egypt, some of the leaders, and he said, I know. That God, according to his promise, is going to take you out of this land and take you back to the land of our forefathers. Now I want you to take my bones. Don't leave my bones here in Egypt. You take my bones along and you bury them over in Canaan. Words of faith from Joseph. I think some years later about the man Joshua. As he was an old man. And he called out to the men and women of his generation. Choose you this day who you will serve. Whether the gods that your forefathers served beyond the flood. The gods of Egypt or if you'll serve the Lord. But as for me and my house, he said, we will serve the Lord. I think of of others who spoke last words in the Bible. There was a man named Phineas. He was an ungodly man. He was the son of, of, of Eli. One of the priests, Hophni and Phineas, the two sons of Eli. They were ungodly men. And the Ark of the Covenant was stolen from Israel because of their ungodliness. And Phineas's wife, she went into labor 
when she heard that the Ark of the Covenant of God was taken. And I think probably the last words of Phineas's wife were, Ichabod! Ichabod! She named her son Ichabod. Do you know what Ichabod means? It means the glory is departed. The glory had departed from Israel. I think the last words from that woman's lips as she gave birth and died was Ichabod. (coughs) Last words in the Bible. You could think of others. We don't know exactly the last words, but the last words we have recorded. I think of that man Saul who had started out as an humble man. He stood head and shoulders, a big, mighty, strong man above the rest of the men and women of Israel. He was a mighty man, Saul, chosen to be the first king of Israel. But he turned from God. And some of the last words we read about Saul is, God won't answer me anymore. Seek me a woman that has a familiar spirit. I picture that strong, broad-shouldered, tall king now quavering and trembling and, and trying to find some other source of strength and power. And he went to his death. Last words. The next king, King David, the Bible specifically tells us about his last words. It says in the book of Chronicles, Now these be the last words of David. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun shineth as a clear, mor- as a clear morning after rain. He that ruleth over men must be just. Last words of David. I think of his son, Solomon. Last words, perhaps we find them recorded in the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We realize that Solomon had started out also an humble man, a man that was given incredible wisdom along with riches because of his request. And yet, he multiplied women and riches and other things and idolatry and and his wives turned his heart from the Lord. But I'd like to believe in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, perhaps we see an old man Solomon recounting and reconsidering life. Perhaps he yet had opportunity to turn to the Lord. The Lord knows we, we will find out in eternity someday. But I believe as we read in Ecclesiastes, we might be saying the last words of Solomon when he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Last words. I think about another king. King Hezekiah, he had been a godly king. There was revival in the days of Hezekiah. But Hezekiah was given a word of prophecy. Hezekiah, you better set your house in order because you're going to die and you're not going to live any longer. Not everyone gets that kind of a warning, that kind of an opportunity. But Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall 
And he pouted and he said, Lord, you know, I've been, I've tried to serve you and so forth. And, and, and the, the Lord turned the prophet around and said, I've added 15 years to your life. But you know, in those 15 years, I don't see a lot of revival in Hezekiah's life. And a king of an, an ambassage from Babylon came to visit and King Hezekiah just showed him around the temple and the palace and the treasures and so forth and and after they left, a prophet came to Hezekiah and said, Hezekiah, who were those men? And then he asked another question. What have they seen in your house? It's a good question, isn't it? And then the prophet gave words of prophecy of the captivity of the children of Israel. But Hezekiah in his old days, his last words weren't very impressive. He said, well, good is the word of the Lord. And if I could paraphrase it, he said, as long as there's peace in my day. Moreover, as long as there's peace in my day, God help us to have more vision than that in our last words. I think of Job. After all the afflictions that Job went through and all the struggles and all the boils and all the destruction and all the losses and sitting in sackcloth and scraping the sores on his body and a loss of friends and family and everything else and then God restored and God began to give vision once again after, after uh, much time, perhaps elapsed. Job said, I have heard you with the hearing of the ear, God, but now my eye sees you. Now my eye sees you. Last words that we have recorded of different ones. We could go on. I'm going to mention just a few more. I want to get to some last words tonight that we want to talk about and focus on. I think about Daniel in the 12th chapter of Daniel after seeing glorious visions of the future. That God gave to Daniel. Daniel had some questions. Daniel had some concerns. He said, oh my Lord, what shall the end be? Last words of a prophet. The servant of God said, go your way, Daniel. It's going to be all right. Many are going to run to and fro. And knowledge shall be increased. But you go your way. For you're going to rest and stand in your lot. At the end of the days, last words. Simeon, the Bible tells us about him, doesn't he? An old man, old, old man in the temple. And the Spirit of God had revealed to that man that he would not pass away until he had seen the Lord's Christ. One day he was there in the temple, and here came that baby. Here came that baby. Last words. Simeon said these words. Lord, now let thou thy servant depart in peace. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Last words of a faithful man. It wasn't long till there was an aged woman, Anna. Anna. Also there in the temple. 
She also got to see that little baby. We don't know what her words were, but we know this. That she thanked God and she spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Israel. Think of the last words of that old woman. As she spoke of the Christ child, I've seen him. He's here. Last words. I think about the Apostle Peter. I love the writings of Peter. I love to preach about Peter. But in the second epistle of Peter, now Peter's an old man. He realizes he's shortly going to to go to his martyrdom under the direction of Nero. Peter had some words. In 2 Peter, he says to the folks there that he was writing to, he said, moreover, I'm going to endeavor to keep these things before you always in remembrance because I know that that shortly I'm going to put off my tabernacle even as the Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. I like that vision of Peter. Some of the last words we read of him, he was going to to endeavor to, to write some things down and to bless the church because he knew he was about to die. I think about John, perhaps one of the last apostles. The others were now dead and gone. And the Bible tells of John in 1 John. 2 John, 3 John speaks of several similar themes. But he said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And history tells us that they would carry John, the Apostle John, around on a stretcher when he was an old man. And this is history. This isn't in God's word, but perhaps the words of John, the last words. We read that, that he would get up on a stretcher and kind of lean up and say to the church as he passed through, little children, love one another. Love one another. Last words. This week, we want to focus on some last words. A number of weeks ago, as I was meditating upon this week, it seemed that that the Lord granted a clear sense of direction to speak from the book of 2 Timothy. Paul's last letter, the Apostle Paul, his last letter that we have recorded, it was to his spiritual son, Timothy. It was one of the, what we call pastoral epistles. There are four chapters in 2 Timothy. You recognize along with me that When Timothy was written, it was just written like a letter. Chapters were not added to your text until about 500 years ago or so. But it makes it easier for us to read. Uh, Chapters, I think, maybe a little more than that. Maybe they were added around the 1200s. So the first thousand years of the church, when they read 1st and 2nd and 3rd and Timothy and 1st, 2nd and 3rd John and so forth, there were not chapter divisions. They just read and, and read sections. Verses were added about in the 1500s, and they're a blessing for us. They're not inspired. I don't believe the designations are inspired. God's word is inspired, and we believe every word of it. We're here to uphold it tonight. But 2 Timothy is nicely divided into four chapters, and I'd like to look at one of those chapters each of these nights. And I wrestled with that, 
for evening messages, but it seemed like that was the clear direction. And so uh, we're going to go forward looking at the last words of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. Along with you tonight, I want to sense the urgency of this final letter that the Apostle wrote, a personal letter to his spiritual son, Timothy. And it's divinely inspired message, and, and we want to take that to ourselves tonight. Last words, Second Timothy chapter 1. Would you turn there, please, with me? 2 Timothy chapter 1, I'd like to invite you to all stand and we're going to read this chapter. I would like you to join in reading when we get to verse 7 and verse 12. When we get to those two verses, you read together with me. We're going to read the entire chapter. Please pay careful attention to the text of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and in thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also." Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. This thou knowest that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are uh, Figelus and Hermogenes, 
The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. You may be seated. Title of the message is tonight is Last Words, I'm Not Ashamed. Last Words, I'm Not Ashamed. Tonight I'd like to look at this chapter with you. We want to look at the text and I want to uphold to you tonight the great importance of the text of Scripture, of of cultivating an appetite for the Word of God itself. We will see that in these last words of our apostle, uh, our beloved apostle, our elder brother Paul, as he was preparing to go to his death. We're going to see him upholding the importance of the Word of God. And I want to hold that up all week long, engage with scripture, not just uh, familiar ideas and verses that we quote occasionally, but I just encourage you, young men and young ladies, to love God's word, to cultivate an appetite for God's word. And I love to share this. I've shared it many times, but you can cultivate your appetite I think Brother Wayne this morning, as he was preaching, said something about Colossians 3, where where it emphasizes that you can set your affection, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, Colossians 3 says. And your, your affection is kind of like your appetite. And, you know, sometimes people say, I, I couldn't help it. I just fell in love with, with this or that. But actually, the truth is, we can help what we fall in love with. And your appetite can be cultivated. And I want to encourage you to cultivate an appetite for God's word and cultivate an appetite for taking a look at whole books of the Bible together as a whole. It doesn't take very long to read completely through this uh, epistle, this letter that Paul wrote, this second letter to his son, Timothy. And perhaps uh, some of you would would take that challenge to just read through the whole letter, maybe every day this week, along with me, in your own time. And, and learn to really enjoy and, and see the themes that run through and the blessings. I won't be able to highlight those like I would like to, but I just want to encourage you and uphold the great importance of the text of Scripture. So tonight the theme is last words... I'm not ashamed. And we want to look at it this way. I've broken down this chapter in four simple ways. I'm going to give them to you at the outset as a simple outline. Number one, I've called faith fathers. And that's verses one through four. If you're making notes, you can note that down now. And we'll take a a look at that. Just a quick look. Faith fathers in verses one through four. Section number two, we'd like to look at fire fanner, fire fanner, and that's in verses five through seven. Section number three, we want to look at a sense of eternal purpose, a sense of eternal purpose in verses eight through 11. And then finally, in verses 12 through 18, 
We want to look together at an unashamed soldier, an unashamed soldier. So tonight, we're beginning this last letter, these last words of the Apostle Paul. You may know this, but Paul, and he states this, we'll look at that, Lord willing, if our Lord tarries until Friday night, perhaps we'll look at that Friday night. In chapter 4, but Paul says, I'm now ready to be offered. He recognized that his time was almost up. You know, the apostle had two imprisonments in Rome that we're aware of. In the end of, of the Acts of the Apostles, and as you learn to engage with the text, I just encourage you, in the New Testament, read the Acts and read the Epistles uh, in conjunction with the, the storyline of Acts as you see how history unfolds. It makes it so much more interesting if, if you can see how things connect together and how they fit together. It's also true in the Old Testament. But at the end of Acts, we find that the Apostle Paul took that sea journey to Rome. You remember that. He had went back to Jerusalem realizing In spite of prophecies that he was going to be captured and bound at Jerusalem, he went back to Jerusalem. He said, I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem. And sure enough, when he got to Jerusalem, he was captured. He was put on trial. But you know how those trials went. They're very interesting. But he appealed unto Caesar. And one of the kings there said, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar you're going to go. And so Paul was put on a ship and sent to Rome. And, and that was quite a journey of its, of its own. It's interesting to read there in the latter part of the book of Acts. But we read in the last chapter of Acts that when Paul arrived at Rome, he was a prisoner, but he was treated kind of like a house arrest. The Bible tells us that he dwelt in his own hired house. He actually had a rented house. What kind of a prisoner is that? He had a lot of freedom, a lot of liberty. He was able to receive people. He was able to meet with people and and reason and talk and discuss Scripture. So it was a a limited confinement, kind of like he was on parole, but he, he had quite a bit of liberty in his first imprisonment. But now, as we read 2 Timothy, this is his second and final imprisonment. Things are a lot different now. He's likely in a, in a dungeon cell. He's very, he's cold. He's longing for a coat. He's, he recognizes that, that, uh, the time's about up. Maybe he's heard something. Maybe he's already heard a pronouncement, but Paul is about to be killed. Paul was a Roman citizen. History tells us that Paul was finally killed by beheading. The reason for that is because he was a Roman citizen. Roman law did not allow the crucifixion, even though capital punishment for the Romans in that time was normally crucifixion for criminals. But since Paul was a Roman citizen, he didn't have, have to, he didn't uh, experience capital punishment by crucifixion, but rather by beheading. Peter, on the other hand, was not a Roman citizen. History tells us that he was crucified because he was not a Roman citizen. Very similar time frame, the latter 60s A.D., both Peter and Paul were killed most likely by the hands of Nero and and his uh, government. So Peter would have been crucified, probably upside down, and Paul would have been beheaded. But this is just shortly before, we don't know how long before, 
Paul was beheaded that he writes this last final letter, these last words, and they're so important for us tonight. I just want to somehow captivate your appetite to look with intensity at these words together with us tonight. There's so much more here that I'll have time to share, but let's look at section number one, faith fathers, faith fathers in verses one through four. And if you'll look with me at this first section, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. I must just stop and comment on that. According to what kind of promise? The promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. I don't know how you see Christianity. I don't know if there's anyone here that's struggling with with what they see, what kind of promises they see. But I want to assure you once again tonight that the promise that we have in God's word, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ that we've heard about today, that we heard about this afternoon in those testimonies, is the promise of life. The promise of life, which is in what? It's in Christ Jesus. That's how Paul began his last letter here. The promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. We're looking at faith fathers. We're thinking about this father, Paul, and some others here. To Timothy, verse 2, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. My dearly beloved son, faith fathers we're thinking about. I'm thinking of the last words of a praying mentor. Young men and young women. I don't know most of you. I know very few of you very well. I don't know about your families, your backgrounds. I don't know your circumstances. I have an idea that many of you have godly parents. But I also know that typically in a crowd this size, probably not all of you do. But I look at just this glimpse when we think about faith fathers. Paul is writing to who he says is my dearly beloved son, Timothy. We recognize that Timothy had some godliness in his background. We're about to read that here. But he apparently didn't have a godly father. He had a father that was a Greek. He had a father that had not uh, insisted that his son comply with the Jewish law. But when Paul was traveling on his second missionary journey and came, if I remember right, to the city of Lystra, there was a young man there that Paul encountered. And it was Timothy. The Bible just says, him would Paul have to go with him. And young men and young ladies, I want to encourage you that I have noticed something in the last number of years. As we have encountered and had communication and even had live with us a number of young people, young men and young ladies both. Seek out faith fathers. God bless you for those of you who have godly parents. Be grateful for them. I had godly parents. I have godly parents. And I'm so grateful. As I get older, I'm so grateful 
for a father who loved God's word and shared it with me, for a mother who woke up in the morning and prayed for me, and I found her out in the dark more than once doing that very thing. I thank God for those things. But I encourage you to seek out men and women of God, older men and women of God. And I know very few men and women of God, older men and women of God, if they find a young man or a young lady who has a heart toward the Lord and is seeking and wants counsel and some direction, that they're not willing to try to help. So faith fathers, I just want to make that word for discipleship and mentoring, the the great blessing that is in, in our lives. I thank God that he surrounded my life and still does, not only with godly parents, but with other men of God that are like pillars to me, that have spoken the word, that have not been afraid to offer a word of caution or, or direction. God bless you. Faith fathers. Well, Paul says here in verse 2 to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers. Night and day, can you see the tremendous blessing of a praying mentor, a praying faith father? Paul said, I don't forget, Timothy. I pray for you night and day. And I know what that is like. I believe there are people who do that for me. And there are certainly young men and young women in my heart and in my wife's heart. And many times together, almost every day, there are many people that, that come to our heart that we pray for. We pray for that God would strengthen them, that would, God would give them direction, that God would, would guide them, that God would protect them. Without ceasing, I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and in thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. I might have said verses 1 to 4. I meant 1 to 5, this first section. 1 to 5. I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee. Unfeigned faith. I thought about titling this message, No Fake Faith. No Fake Faith. That's what unfeigned means. Feigned is when we feign, that means we pretend. You remember King David one time, the Bible talks about how he feigned himself a madman. He was in a tight spot. He was still running from King Saul, and he was captured by a Philistine king. And the Bible says that David scrabbled on the doors and, and stumbled around and let his spit run down on his beard. And, and the king said, what do, I don't need madmen around here. Get this man out of here. And David got out of that one. That was a sly trick he did. He was feigning himself, and I'm not defending what he did, but I'm saying that that's what feigning is. It's putting on a show that isn't real. But Paul said, I call to remembrance, Timothy, the unfeigned faith that is in you. And I'm not only in you, but I remember that it was in your, your mother, Lois, and your, your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, that I'm persuaded in you also. And so as we think about faith fathers, I just want to remind you that faith fathers include faith mothers. And I thank God for faith mothers also. 
women like Lois and Eunice who loved God and who loved his word and who invested in a young man so that Paul could later say, this young man who didn't even have a godly father, Paul could say, I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. There was something in Timothy. He said, I can't even find another young man like this one. And Paul gave that young man responsibility quickly because he had a heart toward the Lord. Now Paul's writing a last letter to this son, this faith father, to his son Timothy. Well, let's move on. There's so much more I'd like to say there. I feel we're not doing the scripture justice, but if we can just whet your appetite a little bit, and you can dig into more of the details and perhaps more will come out through the week. Let's go on now, and let's look at this section, second section I've titled Fire Fanner. Fire Fanner. Look at it with me. Verse 6 and 7. Verse 6 and 7. Paul says, Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Wherefore, he said, I put you in remembrance, Timothy. I'm going to remind you of something. I imagine Paul had told Timothy this a lot of times before. Can you imagine what it must have been like to travel with Paul? I mean, Timothy went along on that second missionary journey and then more uh, travels with Paul and he was sent places by Paul. Imagine what it would be like to travel with Paul. Well, Timothy, it's time for bed. Shall we sing some hymns? Uh, here, here's a blanket. I've got enough to share with you. Let's lay down here. And, and uh, can you, I, I have an idea Paul woke up pretty early in the morning. And, and I just have only, can only imagine what it must have been like to travel with Paul. Can you imagine the songs? Can you imagine the confrontations? Can you imagine the... The, the night meditations, think about those soldiers uh, later that, that were chained to Paul. That must have been something too. But I can imagine Timothy had spent a lot of time with Paul. I'm sure he'd heard a lot of teaching. And Paul said, I call you to remembrance, Timothy. I've told you this before, but I want to remind you of something. And that is that you stir up the gift of God, which is in you by the putting on of my hands. Now, perhaps with Timothy, he was referring specifically to his ordaining as a young elder and being sent to the church at Ephesus and perhaps other places with leadership there. But I want to remind each of you, young men and young ladies, and I want to encourage you like Paul is doing as a fire fanner that you would stir up the gift of God that is in you. And as you have committed your lives to Jesus Christ, perhaps there have been hands laid on you. But I want to encourage you to stir up that gift. You know, we're prone to stagnation as Christians, as people. A fire left to itself tends to go out. Paul said, stir up that gift. And I pictured just like a fire. You need to stir the fire. We used to say that. Let's stir the campfire. When I was a boy growing up in California, we would go backpacking up in the Sierra Nevada mountains and we'd build campfires, sit around those campfires till late. Stars had come out so amazingly starry as you're away from the city lights. 
And the fire would start to go down and someone would get a stick and poke it a little bit. Stir up the fire. Put a, put a piece of wood on it. That's what fires need. They need more wood and fresh air. This week, may God use this opportunity to stir up the gift of God which is in you. Fresh wood. Fresh teaching from God's word. Fresh times of prayer. And, and more air, oxygen to get that fire blazing. That's the spirit of God moving and blowing upon your heart. And I have found that there are times that I know I need that. I know I need that. And there are some very simple things I know. I need some fresh time in God's word. I need to get away and pray. And I need to be around men and women of God. And I have found that that combination has a stirring effect in my life. Stir up the gift of God, which is in you by the putting on of my hands. He goes on and says, for God has not given us the spirit of fear. I don't know if there's anyone here. I wouldn't be surprised there is. There's someone here that has a spirit of fear. I want to encourage you tonight, just like Paul did to this young man that he loved so much. God hasn't given us the spirit of fear. No, remember, this is the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. He hasn't given us the the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And each of those could be a sermon in themselves, but I'm going to hurry on and just remind you of the fire fanner. Remind you that some of the last words of Paul were, stir up, stir up, stir up that gift that is in you. Let's go on and let's look at a third area here in this chapter. This third area is a sense of eternal purpose is what I like to call it. A sense of eternal purpose. Begin in verse 8, 9, 10, and 11. The apostle says this. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Don't be ashamed, Timothy, of the testimony of the Lord. That's the first. Remember, our title tonight is Last Words, I'm Not Ashamed. There are three times in this chapter we read that word ashamed, and here's the first one. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. We had brothers this afternoon who shared the testimony of the Lord and how God worked in their lives. Don't be ashamed of that testimony of the Lord. And Paul goes on to say, or of me, his prisoner. Don't be ashamed of other prisoners of Jesus Christ either. But be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, a partaker of one of the partakers, one of the equal takers of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us. Now, I want you to notice this. I want to highlight something here. Verse 9 and 10. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 
but is now made manifest. He goes on to say that, that this is now made manifest, and I'll comment on that in a moment. But I want to just remind you of these words of Paul. Sometimes I've overlooked this, but I see something very important here. Paul was reminding Timothy of his sense of eternal purpose. I don't know if any of you young men ever struggle with wondering if, if your life really has value or, or significance. I don't know, maybe some of you ladies have struggled with those kind of thoughts. Where do I really fit? Does my life really have significance or value before God? But Paul, here to Timothy, wanted to remind him of something. He said, "He, this God, this Lord, according to the gospel and the power of God, he has saved us and called us. With a holy calling, not according to our works, not because of, of, of a list of, of meritorious accomplishments that has made me somehow turn God's head. Not, not because of a family name or a denominational background or, or a, a particular orientation that somehow... Made, made me turn God's head toward me? No. He has saved us. Believe me, I believe that God has called us to respond to the gospel. I believe that with all my heart. So don't misunderstand me here. But I want to emphasize that this scripture says he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now that ought to give us a sense of eternal purpose. Somehow God looking down, and I don't claim to understand all of this. I recognize that God calls us to respond to the gospel and to obediently follow after him by faith. I believe that with all my heart, but I recognize also that there is an aspect of the divine work of God. There is an aspect of the divine sovereign mind of God that has saved you and called you with a holy calling, not according to some special work on your part, but according to his purpose and grace, which was given in Christ Jesus before the world began. And he has a purpose for your life that is significant. And when we feel like I don't really matter, I, I, it's not, don't believe that. Don't believe that. His own purpose. And grace. I might have purposes and I might have ideas, but God has a purpose and He's called us with a holy calling. He expects us to respond in holy lives. And yes, we do have a choice whether we'll follow Him or not, or continue to follow Him or not. I believe that. Our God's not a tyrant. But there is a divine, sovereign purpose and grace that was given us in Christ. That I think when we somehow in awe, by faith, grasp, like I heard this afternoon, there is a sense of eternal purpose that settles over our lives that I want to call you to tonight. A sense of eternal purpose. Let's go on and look at verse 10. This purpose and grace was given in Christ Jesus before the world began. 
Remember, he was the lamb slain when? Before the foundation of the world. This wasn't some afterthought for salvation. And I'm talking about God choosing to send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For us, this was in the mind of God in eternity past. Before the world began, as he says, but verse 10 says, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Take a, just, just drink those words for a minute. This is now made manifest. Now that word manifest has to do with a revelation. Perhaps some of you men in your businesses or some of you young men, maybe you work at businesses that get shipments, shipments of things from different areas. And usually when a truck brings a shipment, there's something called a shipping manifest. And the shipping manifest tells what's in the load. It tells what's included, what should be there, what was loaded. But Paul says, I've got a shipping manifest here about the grace of God. I want to tell you what was given in Christ Jesus before the world began. But, but the Old Testament saints, they, they saw some things afar off, but they didn't fully grasp it. But he says it's now made manifest. It's now, it's like the veil is taken off of a surprise. It's made manifest. It's, it's unveiled and now we can, can see it. And what is it that we see? It's made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who's done what? He's abolished death. And he's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I think that's glorious tonight. That's a glorious shipping manifest. He's abolished death. We think about death since living in Mexico these last months, kind of in a little different way. There's been a few nights that we've heard gunshots off in the distance. And we don't feel fearful. I, I'm not trying to, to portray that most of the time. But there are times that I, I wonder a little bit. I realize that from human terms, the security of the area we're living is a little different than where we came from, where we didn't lock our house for 25 years. It's a little different. But I find tremendous comfort in the manifest that Paul has unveiled for us here, he says that Christ has unveiled for us who has abolished death. Do you fear death, young man? Do you fear death, young woman? Maybe you've seen someone that gets cancer and they die and it's, a, it's kind of a fearful thing when you get the news. I got the news of a very dear friend this last couple of weeks who, who has a very cancerous tumor. I don't know what's going to happen. I remember a few years ago when my wife's older sister, just 19 months older than her, suddenly a mother of teenagers had a brain tumor. Two weeks later, we put her in the casket. She went from a, what we thought was a healthy mother of teenagers and a, a beautiful sister in the church. Two weeks later, she was buried. Death. It, it holds a fear for us. It holds an awe for us. But I'm telling you tonight that there's been something unveiled. There's been something manifested. And it's that Jesus Christ has abolished death. And that's such a joy to me tonight. And it's such good news tonight. It's something we can proclaim without shame. We have a Savior who's abolished death. And He invites people to life. 
Paul started out this last letter according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, because he's abolished death. And not only that, but he's brought life and immortality. That's eternal life, immortality. We're mortal now. That means we're going to, to die. We're subject to mortality. But immortality is when we take on eternal life. And Christ has brought to light. You know, it was there, but it was shadowed. It was shadowed. But he's turned on the light and he's made it manifest so we can see it. And he's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel. The gospel is the good news. It's the glad tidings of Jesus Christ. What did the angels say that night to the shepherds on the hillside? Did they say, trouble for the earth because God's mad at men? That's not what they said. They said, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That's the heart of your God tonight, beloved. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. God is inviting men to salvation. He's a just God. He's a holy God. He will judge sin. And the Bible is clear to us that many there be that go down the broad road, that go away from him. But tonight I want to remind you of the glorious promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, who's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Let's keep the gospel what it is. It's good news. It's not bad news, beloved. It's good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's brought it to light for us. Whereunto, verse 11, I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. Every verse has, has trails that we could go down and talk about, but we're not going to take time tonight. I want to move on to this last section that we've called the unashamed soldier. We've talked about faith fathers. We've talked about the fire fanner. We've talked about a sense of eternal purpose. Now I want to talk about being an unashamed soldier in these last verses. Look with me, beginning at verse 12. The apostle says, For which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. That's the title tonight. Last words, I'm not ashamed. That's what the apostle says in his latter words. Shortly before his head gets cut off, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I'm persuaded of that, the apostle says. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that verse as we conclude. I'm going to move on a little further right now. Verse 13, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Paul said, Timothy, you hang on to sound words. To Titus, another young man that he called his spiritual son, he said, you speak the things that become sound doctrine. Now, when something is sound, it's solid. It'll, it'll, it'll stand up the test. And Paul told Timothy, Timothy, hang on to sound words. There's a lot of light stuff out there. Do you want Christianity light? You know, it's become popular to have things that are light. Pepsi light or whatever, all kinds of light. But I don't want Christianity light. Paul said, hold on to sound words, Timothy. You've heard of me. 
I've taught you the truth. I haven't watered it down. It's the real thing. Hold fast the form of sound words. I just want to encourage us as men and women of God, be careful of light words. Sound words. We want solid sound words. There are little cliches that are easy to throw around about our Christian life. It's good to stop and just consider. Am I holding on to sound words? Sound words. We're talking about being an unashamed soldier. Hold fast the form of sound words. Verse 14. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. Keep. And he He goes on and speaks about some who didn't keep it. This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Phigellus and Hermogenes. A couple men, he names them out by name, who have turned away. But he said, Timothy, the good thing that was committed unto you, keep. My young brothers and sisters, friends, all of us, there's something worth keeping. The good thing which was committed unto you. It's it's possible that there would be a deceiver. In fact, Jesus talked about him. He called him the thief. And he said something about him. He said there's a thief and he comes for three reasons. He said the thief cometh not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. There's someone that wants to steal good things. But Paul told Timothy, don't give in to the thief. Timothy, that good thing which was committed unto you, keep, keep by the Holy Ghost which was given unto us. Don't lightly let loose of solid and sound things. In fact, don't let loose. There's some things that are worth keeping. And may God give you wisdom in this generation in the 2000 to keep that good thing which was committed unto you by the Holy Ghost. Unashamed soldiers. Unashamed soldiers. He goes on in verse 16. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy in the Lord of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. I've noticed this about Paul. He wasn't afraid to name people out. You look at the 16th chapter of Romans sometime, and he starts down the list. He just starts, send greetings to this one, to that one, to the other one. A lot of them were ladies in Romans 16. He comments on this one, that one. But notice here, he highlights this on Asiphorus. He said, he oft refreshed me, Timothy. This brother, Onesiphorus, he'd come, I don't know if he'd lower water down in the dungeon to Paul or if he'd ask permission or he'd talk to the soldiers and and bring them some fresh bread from his wife and say, would you let me go talk to Paul a little bit? I brought some bread for him too. Would that be, I, I don't know. All I know is, and maybe it was just a word, shouting a word through the prisoner, but he oft refreshed the apostle Paul. Wasn't ashamed of his chain, didn't bother him a bit. What are you going to talk to that guy? He's condemned to die. He's a heretic. He's crazy. Why are you talking to him for? Onesiphorus didn't care. Not ashamed of Paul's chain. What are you ashamed of? It's one thing to be here and to be unashamed. But have you ever found the temptation 
I know because I have when I was a younger man. There were times when I wrestled a little bit about being ashamed of things I shouldn't have been ashamed of. Timothy wasn't ashamed of Paul's chain, but he sought him out and he found him. The Lord granted to him mercy, Paul said, and you know how many things he ministered at Ephesus, Timothy. You were in on some of that. This brother was a helper. This brother was a blessing on a Cyphers. Well, I want to circle back to verse 12 as we conclude tonight. We've looked at this first chapter tonight, some of the last words of the Apostle Paul as he spoke about faith fathers and set that example himself, as he spoke about being a fire fanner, as he spoke to us those awesome words of eternal purpose. And now he speaks about being an unashamed soldier. Remember, he said, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. Don't be ashamed of his other prisoners. And and I'm not ashamed because I know who I have believed. I want to speak about that just a little bit as we conclude. I know, the apostle said, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able. You know, I want to talk to you just a moment And I I want to hurry to a conclusion tonight. I want to talk to you a little bit about this God, your God. Paul said, I know who I have believed. I'm not ashamed because I know who I have believed. And I am persuaded that he's able. Tonight, I want to invite you to be persuaded that he's able. He's able. Able? Able? Why don't you think about that word able a little bit? I have an idea most of you are Bible readers. You're familiar with scriptures. Why don't you think about this a little bit? I want to think about your God being able. Before I do that, I want to just comment about God's power. God's able. That's quite a statement, isn't it? I'm persuaded that he's able. Is he really able? You know, I've worked around power most of my life. For many years, I worked in in herbicide work and vegetation control, and it seemed like as we had a number of commercial accounts, the company I worked with, we would work around all kinds of different power. I can remember a few years ago spraying under the, the light controls at the Spokane International Airport, and I would be down there spraying with clearance from the Federal Aviation Administration to even get to that spot on the runway and a gigantic jet would go roaring by enough that I would get a blast of air. Tremendous power. Those jets are amazing. As we left Guadalajara Saturday morning, I was again amazed as I always am at the thrust as you go soaring into the air. The power of a jet, those jets are able because of tremendous jet power to lift hundreds of people in the air and send them thousands of miles. It's amazing. They're able. We've sprayed around electric substations. I sprayed a substation a few years ago north of Seattle. There was so much energy and power, and some of you know more about this than I would. We had to go through clearance, had to have complete security uh, to even get in there. And I could feel the hair There was so much energy around that place. The man told me, if this substation goes out, the city of Seattle is going to go dark. There's a tremendous amount of power going through there. 
And he said, there are breakers here that, it, that when we throw the breaker, if we need to throw a breaker, he said, it will arc 10 feet, a blue arc, crack like a rifle shot. Tremendous amount of power. That substation was able to channel electric power to millions of people. Tremendous power. I've worked around railroads, locomotives, thousands and thousands of horsepower pulling trains a mile long. Power, they're able to do it. But now as we conclude tonight, I'm thinking about, is your God able? Is your God able for you? Is God really able? I just want to highlight some scriptures real quick. I'm just going to highlight them before your mind as you think about God being able. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, Our God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always, having all sufficiency in every good thing, may abound to every good work. Hebrews 7, 25 says, He is able to save them to the uttermost who come to God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. The, the Bible tells us in 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 the Gospels that Jesus Christ said, don't, don't look at your own life. God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Our God is able tonight. I think about Romans 4.21. Abraham, the Bible says, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to perform. This is an old man who had been promised to have a son. He had a 90-year-old wife, but he still believed that God is able to do what he promised. Is your God able tonight? Romans 14 talks about the weak brother in the church, the weak sister. It says he shall be holding up because God is able to make him stand. Is your God able tonight? Do you think you're outside the reach of God? Is your God able? Hebrews 2.18 says he is able. That's our Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. He is able to succor those that are tempted. Is your God able when your temptation is raging in your heart and you're wrestling with that temptation to do something that you know is not right? Is your God able in that He has suffered being tempted? He is able to succor those that are tempted. Your God is able tonight. Jude tells us now unto Him that is able, able to keep you from falling and Present you faultless before the throne of his majesty with exceeding joy. Your God is able tonight. And I'll yet mention Ephesians. I believe it's chapter 4 that says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. He is able. Is your God able? Tonight as we conclude, I want to ask you something. Paul said, I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Are you willing, young people tonight, to commit to him who is able? What are you willing to commit to him? Paul said, I know he's able to keep what I've committed. We're talking about commitment now. I want to ask you if you're willing tonight to commit your soul to God, to the Lord Jesus Christ. I know you have already, many of you, most of you. 
But maybe you've struggled. Maybe tonight again you need to commit your soul. Will you commit your soul? Will you commit tonight your relationships to God? Paul said, there's things that I've committed to him against that day. Will you commit your relationships? Will you commit your work situation, your plans, your current situation right now, your hopes, your, your, your plans? Will you commit that to God tonight? Would you be willing to commit something that is unchangeable? Your natural looks that God has given you. Will you commit that to God tonight? The, the physical characteristics He's given you. Will you commit that to God? Would you be willing to commit that to Him? Would you commit to the Lord tonight your inner desires for ministry? Would you commit that to the Lord? Would you be willing to commit your singleness to the Lord? Your current singleness, would you commit that to the Lord? Would you be willing to commit your talents, the abilities that you have, the opportunities you could pursue, the gifts, perhaps, that you've been given? Would you be willing to commit those to the Lord? Would you be willing to commit your fears to the Lord tonight? Your fears. Could I sum it up this way? Would you be willing to commit your future to the Lord tonight? Commit your future to Him. The apostle said, I know. I'm not ashamed because I know who I have believed and I am persuaded tonight I'm asking you to allow the Spirit of God to persuade your heart that your God is able. He's able, He's able to keep the things that you commit to Him against that day. Would you be willing tonight to commit to Him those things? Your soul, your relationships, your work, your looks, your ministry desires, your singleness, your talents, your fears, your future. Would you commit those to the Lord tonight? May we all stand and turn to hymn number 478 again. Regardless of where you're at with your, in your walk with the Lord tonight, whether you have been walking with Him and you're walking in freedom, but maybe there's some areas that you're uncertain about. You feel like maybe you need to commit to the Lord. 
Maybe things I've mentioned or things I have not mentioned that you know needs to be committed to the Lord, maybe recommitted. Would you allow the Lord to persuade you that He's able to keep that? Would you commit to Him? And if there's something you'd like to commit afresh, maybe it's your soul. Maybe you don't feel ready to meet that judge. Maybe it hasn't been fully manifest to you, or maybe it has been, but but you don't feel like you're there. This abolishing of death and bringing life and immortality to light through the gospel. Would you be willing to commit tonight something to the Lord? Is there something the Lord is laying on your heart to commit to Him? If so, you can do it. You can resolve in your own heart once again or for the first time, Lord, that area I'm committing to you. And I'm persuaded tonight you're able to keep, Lord, what I commit to you against that day. If you'd like to make that commitment, you're welcome to come and find a a place of prayer to do that between you and the Lord. You're welcome to do that wherever you'd like. If you'd like to come forward, this is an opportunity for fresh commitment right at the beginning of the week. Don't be ashamed. You can do it where you're at also. That's up to you. That's between you and God. All I know is it needs to happen. If there's something that the Lord is bringing to your heart that you need to commit to Him, don't be ashamed. Paul said, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day. Let's sing 478. The Lord lays on your heart a commitment. You can make that this evening.